0: Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, as we read verses 28 to verse 34. Hear now the word of God. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea And drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask his favor. Lord Jesus, would you minister to our hearts today so that we can remember that though this world with devils filled may threaten to undo us, we will not fear because of you. And so at once, make us to take the spiritual threats around us seriously, but make us even more to see the deliverance and the love of Jesus that is even greater and even more serious. Fill us with a holy joy today through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Many or most of you may know who C.S. Lewis is. If uh, if you're a kid in the room, maybe you have read the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series. C.S. Lewis is the author of those books uh, if you're a nerd like me, he wrote the Space Trilogy, and that's what he should always be remembered for. Um, all five of you that have read it. Um, I don't think C.S. Lewis would like this very much, but every time I think of demons, I think of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> I'm sure he wouldn't like that, actually. Um, but as a new Christian, I remember reading—I remember reading the Screw Tape Letters really early on, and finding that a very interesting and, and I think helpful book at that point in my life, the sort of book that sort of puts you on the alert for the sort of darkness of your own heart, certainly as a Christian and the ways that, that you might be deceived. I found it helpful in that sense, but there was somewhere else, I think, I don't think this was in the Screwtape Letters where he said this. Uh, he said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to believe disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And it always seemed to me uh, that uh, the people that were the most interested in demons were way too interested in demons. Uh, and, then there, and then there was another group that seemed to not talk about them at all. And, and I actually think there's another group in that, besides the people who are overly interested and the people who disbelieve, and that is those who who, who believe in demons, but don't really believe in demons. So what I mean is that the category of person I'm talking about believes demons are real. They know demons are real. At least they say that they know and they say that they do believe that demons are real. Um, we, we, they know that we see them in the Bible, that we, that we see Jesus contend with them. But we've never seen a demon, right? We've never encountered them as far as we know. Um, we believe we can so account for human behavior just in terms of our own sinful, human sinfulness that why do we need to make a reference to the demonic in order to explain the evils of the world into which we live? And so uh, if we're honest, we, 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 we ultimately want to say, look, we are responsible for our own sin. And so in our minds, I think demons don't give much explanatory power. Why would we need to talk about demons? Why would we need to think about demons? And that could be you. It's very easy to s- slip into that way of thinking. It's, it's easy to think that this is the sophisticated position. This is the sophisticated way to think about our moral and spiritual struggles Uh, One time Lewis was getting interviewed and he was asked whether demons are actually real. I just thought what an interesting question to ask Lewis. It's like you've read his books, you know what he thinks. But he said, are demons really real? And Lewis said the degree to which humans were conscious of their presence would presumably vary very much. I mean, the more a man was in the devil's power, the less he would be aware of it. On the principle that a man is still fairly sober as long as as he knows he's drunk. It is the people who are fully awake and trying hard to be good who would be most aware of the devil. It's when you start arming against Hitler that you first realize your country is full of Nazi agents. Of course, they don't want you to believe in the devil. If devils exist, their first aim is to give you an anesthetic to put you off your guard. All right, no more Lewis. Lewis is not scripture. Um... It's not like this quote settles things or illuminates things all that much. But I think it's, I guess I think that the point he makes here is helpful. Perhaps part of the reason why we think so little of the devil, perhaps the reason we think so little of demons is not because we're so sophisticated and philosophical and intellectual and thoughtful and theologically advanced. Perhaps it's really because we are sleepy to the reality of the demonic. Perhaps the enemy has even made inroads into our own religious lives. And in so doing, he's doled us to the truth so that we we do live in a world of spiritual warfare and we are blind to it. And so today I want to share with you three truths that this passage teaches us about demons. First, this passage teaches us that demons are real. Second, that demons are creatures. And then third... Demons are defeated, and I would suggest we need to have a new appreciation of the reality that there is a battle going on in this world. Scripture is abundantly clear that demons are real. We have a genuine enemy in this world, but I think it's also important for me to say, for us to see from God's word that while believers should be aware that the devil and his angels are real, we need to take them seriously without fearing them. We take them seriously Without fearing them. Let me show you why from Jesus' interaction here this morning. First, this morning's passage shows us that demons are real. Look at the first two verses again. It says, When he came to the other side, remember he was crossing the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, and he goes to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, this isn't the first time in the Bible that demonic beings have appeared in Scripture. Uh, All told, the names Satan or demon or devil appear almost 150 times in Scripture. Uh, Satan is depicted in Revelation as the great deceiver, the serpent, the deceiver of the whole world. And demons are described as being his angels is the terminology that's used who were thrown down with him we can piece together that at some time in the past satan served as an angel of the lord and was cast out of heaven along with the angels loyal to him Uh, these fallen angels are called demons They, they do exist on this earth and they are quite real And today's passage is not the first encounter between God's people and the demonic in scripture, but it is the first real confrontation that Matthew has shown us between Jesus and demons. Uh, We've been told about it before in passing when he healed people uh, who were oppressed by demons, but this is our first opportunity in the narrative to see what that might actually look like when Jesus does this. Uh, We have here two men. These two men are possessed by demons. They are owned by them. They are indwelt by them. The, the demons uh, dwell within these men such that they control their, their, uh, their ability to act, their ability to think, their ability to reason, their, their, their bodies. It, it appears even that they have frightening amounts of strength. Um, these men uh, do not have any self-control at all. They are under an external control by some other being, or as it turns out, Many beings. It is a very terrifying thing. It's a scary thing. Um, the The point the point to see is that these men are not psychologically troubled. These are not men who just need a good counselor, right? They are not simply out of control. They are possessed by very real entities that, to us and to our minds and to our own understanding, are very are largely very mysterious. And let me mention two goals of demonic activity as we see it in scripture. What are these demons doing? Why do they control these men? What is the point of such needless destruction? Why would they possess these men? I want to point out two things that you see scripture in scripture that Satan and his demons do. The first is this demons seek to discredit the church. They seek to discredit the church. They seek to bring charges against God's people. Uh, I can show you a few examples of this. One is early on in the book of Job. You remember early in the book of Job, uh, you you are were given a vision of the heavenly council, where Satan comes before God. He comes before the Creator, and Satan is certain of one thing. He is certain that Job will fall. He will fail. He is certain of this because he believes something about Job's inner life, about where his true affections lie, and he believes that Job only loves God because God has made his life good. Job, you have conditional faith in God. You will love God as long as he's good to you, but Satan believes, no, what if he is tested and sifted? He says he will fail, he will fall. What does he want to do here? He wants to discredit the faith of God's people. That's what he's seeking to do. He's he's seeking to overthrow the glory of God in the heart of Job. And in so doing, his plan is to overthrow the glory of God. Because Job is a carrier of the glory of God. His faith in God is a reflection of the faithfulness of God. Later on in the book of Zechariah, what happens? Satan brings charges of iniquity and uncleanness against God's people. But of course, God, through his angel, washes and cleanses Zechariah. So though Satan brings the accusation, it can't stand, right? This is one of the goals of, of demons. This is one of the goals of Satan, to discredit and fill God's people with fear, fear that God isn't gracious, or to portray to the world that maybe, just maybe, God doesn't wash and cleanse a people for himself. Of course, Paul Reminds us that all of these things that Satan believes and hopes are not true. What does he say in Romans 8? If God is for us, who can be against us? He is faithful. His attempts to dissuade the world, dissuade God's people from believing that he is faithful are false and they will fail too. Instead, what does Paul say? He says, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? One of the goals of demonic activity is to discredit and deface and ultimately to destroy the church. And so we should be on the lookout for this in our world. In fact, I'll give you one example of how this is done in our next point here. The second thing I want to show you is this. Demons seek to deprive God of his glory. All right. These are connected to each other. Of course, if if Satan can discredit the church, then he can deprive God of his glory. Well, this is the second thing that demons attempt to do. You see this in Scripture, um, especially you see it early on in the Gospel of Matthew. We were here. We, we saw this already uh, where Satan entices Jesus to what? To worship him. He says, bow down and worship me. He says, we'll do an exchange. I'll give you something and you give me something. And so in exchange, he says, bow down, worship me. And Satan says that in, that in exchange, he would give him the kingdoms of the world. And when he did that, what was he doing? He was showing his hand. He was showing his plan. He was showing the thing that he wanted more than anything else. What we saw was that Satan is a demonic being who desires the glory that belongs to God. Instead of loving God, love me. He wants the glory that belongs to God. Other times you see demons talking about Jesus before the appointed time. Uh, What are they doing? They see that Jesus is here. And so they try to talk about him on their terms. They try to reveal him on their terms. They, They speak the title of Jesus. They call him the Holy One of God. And then they laugh. They try to wrestle the name of Jesus into their own control. What do they want? They want to skew how people see Jesus before the appointed time is there. They seek to deprive Jesus of his glory. Uh, There are other times you see demons depriving God of his glory. And they do it by harming people. They do it by harming and, and twisting human beings. Human beings who bear the mark, bear the image of the creator. Uh, This can look like efforts to deface humanity, to obscure the image of God, to deprive human beings of their worth and dignity. You see that in Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, the, the demon possesses the man's son. And what does he do to the man's son? He throws him into fires. The demons throw him into the water, right? If they can't harm, if they can't destroy those who bear the image of God, They will at least be satisfied by hiding the glory of God that should be visible in these image bearers. Destruction, destroying the holy, destroying the good, destroying that which is righteous. Uh, There's a sociologist named Philip Reith. He coined a term called death work. And he uses the term death work to refer to the act of, of taking a sacred symbol from a previous era and then using it in order to subvert and then destroy that symbol's original significance and purpose, right? If you can take something that's good and beautiful and holy and deface it, then you can subvert what it was made for in the first place. Um, the example, uh, the classic example of this would be the famous painting of a crucifix in a jar of urine, right? This is a death work, right? It's, it's meant to take something that's holy and it's meant to deface it, and it's meant to display subversion of this thing that is supposed to be good. You and I live in an age of death works. We live in an age of death works. You can look around, all around you, and see holy things being blasphemed and defaced. Um, not just in the art world. Let me give you some very practical, real-world examples Uh, We live in a time of abortion. Abortion is a death work. Roe versus Wade may be ancient, shameful history by now, but abortion is still here. Abortion still happens. It's very much a priority of many in our nation. But why, why would I call it a death work? Why is it a death work? Because it is the intentional destruction and defacing of something that is holy. The human being right? Someone who is an image bearer of God. And in a sense, it is an effort to defame the holy. It is an attempt to deface God himself. The destruction of human life is always a death work. War itself is a death work. Uh, When human beings murder one another, it is a death work, but even more so when it is an innocent. Defenders of abortion often will say, It's just a clump of tissue, but it isn't just a clump of tissue. It's one of God's representatives on earth at its most vulnerable and defenseless. One of his great representatives designed to live and walk with dignity and shine forth God's glory and yet destroyed as if it were only a clump of tissues. We must pretend this is only a clump of tissues or we will see it for what it is. It is a death work. Carl Truman in his most recent book points out that the rainbow flag is a death work. That flag we see flying all over this city. The rainbow, of course, was a sign, it was a good and holy and righteous thing. It was a sign that God's God gave to his people, a sign of his covenantal love, a sign that he was faithful, a sign that he would never break his promises. And yet the flag is used to subvert human beings in their design and their purpose. Because the flag, you would think, screams, God is faithful. His covenant is sure. We can trust him. He is worthy. We should listen to our God. And instead, the flag says, human beings may be designed by God to fill the earth, to multiply, to live within the bounds God has set for it. But we will live as we want, by our own designs and by our own impulses. And many churches in our land, even in this city, even on this block, fly the rainbow flag. They fly this death work intended to profane the holy, to take the good and do something twisted with it. Truman actually reminds us that this practice where churches fly the flag actually echoes Frederick Nietzsche's madman who rhetorically asked, what after all are these churches now if not the tombs and sepulchres of God? What are they indeed? By, this, by the way, this also does remind me of something else I mentioned uh, before. One of the purposes of demonic activity is to discredit the church. Every church that flies the rainbow flag has discredited itself. It has forgotten that God has spoken. And it has chosen to ignore his word. It's decided to yield to the spirit of the age. It is sadly common. That does not mean that we do not love everyone we meet. It does not mean that we do not pray that the Lord would give them heart change. It does not mean that we welcome anyone into the church who would like to come and hear God's message. We welcome everyone. But a church that yields itself to the world no longer has a message from God to share. It has sentimentality, but no truth that can give life. It only has a culture out there, please teach me. Teach me what I'm supposed to believe. So that I might not listen to what God has to say. When a church has become a death work. Defacing the holy. Satan has succeeded in his mission. It is his desire to discredit the church. And to deface God's glory. And so Jesus comes to the country of the Gadarenes. And these men are living in the tombs. And they live in this place of the dead. On the one hand a tomb is a place of dignity. It's a place that's meant to be the place from which the dead will rise one day. And so in a sense, these tombs are a sacred place. They're a holy place. on the other hand, it's not a place for the living to stay and for the living to dwell. These men are living upside down lives. They're living in a place they ought not to be. Their presence, their dwelling there is itself a death work. That's what they're doing in the tombs. We learn in other accounts of this passage that the men aren't just living there. They are terrorizing people. They are hurting themselves. They are screaming. They're, they're tearing apart their own bodies so that they themselves are unrecognizable. They are completely stripped of their dignity. Exactly what demons would do wherever they find the image of God. And that is exactly what is happening. The human image of God is being defaced. Now, the first point this morning is that we need to be aware demons are real. The demons in this passage are intent on turning these men, turning these tombs, turning the region of the Gadarenes into a place where the glory and beauty of God is lost and obscured by their persistent actions of defacing the image of God. But we need to be alert. To how the demonic are still very much active in our own day as well. Wherever you see death works, you are looking at signs of the demonic. The demonic is quite real. Second, today it's very important to remember that demons are creatures. By that I mean they are created. They are made. They are under the sovereign hand of God. They don't live with a free hand. Um, Remember what they said when they saw Jesus in verse 29. They say, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So so first when they see Jesus, it's like they realize that their time of freedom to terrorize this region and these men seems to have come to an end. Right? They they literally say to him, if you were to take the the Greek and you were to, to translate it just raw, they say, What is it to us and to you? What is it to us and to you? And so the way you might understand this is we have nothing in common, leave us alone. Basically, they're saying we shouldn't be at the same place at the same time together. That's what they're saying to Jesus. We shouldn't be together. So the only reason they could possibly think that the Son of Man would be near them is the one thing that's on their mind, torment. See, now the tormentors are afraid they're about to be tormented. They've, they've wreaked havoc. They've tormented everyone, And yet they think it's about time I'm about to receive a premature judgment. In their words, they say, before the time. We're going to get a judgment before the time. Have you come to judge us early, Jesus? See, even as they've been living destructively, they know that there is a judgment coming. They know that this doesn't get to go on forever. Uh, There is a reckoning on its way. The demons know it. I would just say in passing, what's true of them is true of all of us in that sense. The world will not keep going on as it is. Scripture is filled with people who yearn for God to answer their cries of pain, to give victims justice. And the promise is given that one day he will wipe every tear from their eye. But the flip side is that the guilty will be judged. Right? The question we each have to ask ourselves is, are we ready for the judgment? Are we ready for the day when the book's will be open. If we've sinned, and we all have, then our only hope is not to be better and better people. Our only hope is to trust in Jesus. Our only hope is to be in him and to have him as our righteousness. Learn the lesson that even the demons know. Jesus is the son of God and the judgment is coming. Don't put it out of your minds. Don't try to forget it. Don't try to amuse yourselves to death. Instead, listen to the truth. The judgment is coming. We will all have to face it. These demons are facing it right now. Now, look what happens in verses 30 to 32. They don't don't quite experience a final judgment. They get a mini judgment. It says, now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, And the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. It's like they knew Jesus was kind. And they knew Jesus wouldn't possibly bear with them tormenting these men. The demons don't have bad theology. We'll talk about this in a moment. They don't have bad theology. They know God is gracious. They know Jesus is gracious. They can predict what he's going to do, even though he hasn't said word one to them yet. You're going to show mercy to these men, aren't you? Um, so instead of tumbling into a lake of fire, they're going to tumble into a lake of water. Here's the thing, though. We've been talking about demons, and I guess I'm thinking of the kids, but maybe the adults as well. Maybe the idea of demons really frightens you. I guess that's not just a kid thing. I think that's a grown-up thing, too. Um, maybe talking about demons is upsetting to you. I, I want you to see something very clearly here today. These demons are creatures. They are creatures. They live with limitations. They're not omnipresent beings. They cannot be everywhere at all times. Um, they are as much creatures as the sea that Jesus stilled in our message last week. Uh, they are as much creatures as anything else in the world. So please do not think of, of God and Satan As being sort of two equal sides of an eternal grudge match. That is not what this universe is. That's, if you want to get philosophical for a minute, that's what the Manichaeans thought. The Manichaeans thought the universe was just an equal battle between light and darkness. And that they were constantly butting heads. And that there was no resolution. And that you had to choose a side. This world is not a seesaw between two equal beings, right? That's movie and video game talk, maybe, but it's not God's world. Satan, however he lashes out, however he behaves, cannot go beyond the bounds that God sets, right? That's, that's one of the lessons of the book of Job is that Satan has to get permission for everything that touches Job. That's right. Everything that happens, he's on a leash, Demons, whatever they may do, ultimately live under the restraining hand of God. All right, look at the passage. If Jesus tells them to go, then they must go whether they want to or not. Why does Satan have to ask permission? Because he's not an equal to God. He is a creature who ultimately serves God's purposes. Uh, the truth is that even the evil of this life takes place under the providence, the planning, the purpose of God. God rules over Satan. And yet we also know God is pure. He is good. He is unstained. He is not, never guilty of sin. The holiness and the sovereignty of God are both affirmed in Scripture unembarrassingly by the writers of Scripture. Now, that does not mean that these don't present philosophical challenges for us to think through. Or to yield to God and his mystery. But they are biblical. They are biblical affirmations. And they're given to us by God in scripture for our encouragement. Not to send us into a philosophical tailspin. Um, Luther used to say, yes, he is the devil. But he's God's devil. Uh, He operates on a leash which God holds, as it were, in his hand. So what does it mean for you and me? For one thing, it means... We need to stop fearing that we live in a world that is outside the control of God. We need to stop thinking secretly that that might be what the truth is. For another thing, it means that the idea of demons shouldn't frighten us. Um, We have nothing to fear from the demonic because, as we're going to see in a moment, while demons are real and while demons seek to harm the Christian... God protects us from true harm, and he uses even the temptations and trials that we experience to serve his own purposes of making us even more holy. Maybe you're younger, and the idea of demons frighten you. When I was a child, I would lay in the dark of my room, and I would imagine the world around me swirling with frightening beings. And my mind would run away with itself, and... I easily forgot, or maybe I hadn't been taught yet, but I easily forgot that not even a hair could fall from my head apart from the Father's will. So easy to forget that. Do you need to be reminded of that today? I want you to know if you are a child of God, you have nothing to fear from the reality of demons. Um, Even the devil himself operates on a leash that's held by the same God who loves you because demons are mere creatures. And why is that? Well, It brings us to what happens in our third point this morning. Uh, Here we see that demons are not only real, they're not only creatures, but they are also defeated. They're defeated. Look in verses 32 to 34 with me once again. It says, And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. The the thing that always struck me about this story was that, that Jesus does this amazing thing here. He frees these men. He frees these men from the grip of the devil and his angels. And yet the herdsmen... And apparently the, the people of the city, the herdsmen are more terrified by the idea that someone could control these demons. That is what is frightening to them. And, and you see this all over scripture where someone will be terrified and then the rescue will happen and then they'll get more scared. Um, when I was a kid, I scared my sisters. I, I was a bad brother and I got a... I got a scary mask uh, that was necessary for the month of October, in my mind. And uh, it was just a pale, creepy mask. I won't describe it anymore. And my mom goes, Adam, wake your sisters up. It's time for school. So we had this long stairway that went all the way to the top. It was like probably 15 steps to get to the top. And so I was at the bottom There's a door. And so I go, okay, Mom. And I, and I yelled upstairs, girls, it's time to wake up. And you could hear them coming down the stairs. And there I was, maybe or maybe not, wearing the mask. And uh, they opened the door, and they saw me. And you've never seen two more scared little girls in your life. Now, I was only 15, but I was a, I, as I say, I was a bad brother. Don't do this, little kids. Don't do this. Uh, and they screamed, and they like, started crawling up the steps. And then and then I was like, oh, no, this is really bad. I have scared them way more than I actually intended to. I feel really get bad instantly. And also, I'm sure I'm going to get in huge trouble now. Right. <laughs> so I ripped off the mask. And I go, it's OK. It's just me. And they go, ah! <laughs> they were more afraid when the mask came off than if I had just kept it on and tried talking them down. <laughs> they were... They were more terrified of me when I revealed my true face. I mean, is there some analog here, right? Jesus casts out the demons and they're more afraid. Um, That's what happens when Jesus stills the storm, right? He stills the storm and then they're very afraid. Uh, In the book of Jonah, there's the storm, Uh, What happens? Jonah says, toss me into the sea. And then after he's thrown into the sea, uh, if you look at the text, it actually says that they are more afraid after the sea is still than they were before. This happens over and over again, where people cannot bear to have this rescue because something, the implications of the rescue say something that they cannot stand the thought of. The text says that they cannot bear to have Jesus among them after he delivers these men. The text says they begged him to leave their region. They begged him to leave. We learn from Mark's account of these events that these people in this region tried everything. They tried everything that, humanly speaking, they could think of before Jesus came. They tried chaining these men up to no avail. They did try, right? They, they exerted themselves. They made their effort and they gave up. They said, our human attempt to deal with these demons is a failure. And yet Jesus, with one word, accomplishes more than they ever could have. Right? These demons are defeated, but what kind of power must it take to do that? This thing that we couldn't do no matter what we did. And he says one word. These demons were defeated. They came out. When they were told to, they had to obey Jesus, just as we saw already. They're mere creatures. They're subject to God. Um, when I was a child and I was afraid of the idea of demons, I needed to learn, and I needed to learn to love the truth that demons are creatures. They're under the, the sovereign rule of God. They can't do anything that my God won't let them do. And Jesus says, Jesus says one word. He says one word, and they go. It's the only word Jesus speaks in the narrative. From beginning to end, he only says one word. One word from Jesus, these men are freed from untold misery. One word, their lives are changed forever. These, these spirits, they're talkative. You know, <laughs> they're a talkative bunch. They're, they, they, they can't stand in the presence of Jesus without trembling, without fear. And like so many people, when they get afraid, what do they do? Their mouth starts running. And they, they tremble. And Jesus is not trembling in this passage. He doesn't walk up to the tombs and, you know, he's, uh, he's not afraid of them. And if you're with Jesus, you don't need to fear them either. Um, they just saw Jesus and they knew he was going to cast them out. And if, and if you belong to Christ, let me say this very clearly. There is no room for the spirit of Christ and any evil spirit. Um. Paul teaches us this in 1 Corinthians 6.19. He says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Who dwells within that temple? The Holy Spirit. He lives in you like a person lives in a house or, or like someone, like a congregation lives in a church building. That is how God dwells in you. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he says that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so if you have the spirit of Christ, you should fear nothing. You should not even fear the knowledge that demons are real. It should not cause you to tremble. It should not cause you to lose sleep. You see, for Christians, Satan is an external force in their life, not an internal one. And also, I would just say, he's not an omnipresent being. He's not an omnipresent being. It's not like he can be in all places at all times. He is not God. He's a spirit. He he lives with limitations. You do not need to be afraid of Satan or his demons. You are indwelt by the spirit of Jesus. And so they tremble at him. Not only can they not control, not only cannot they not contain, they they cannot live within you. They cannot possess you for you are possessed by Christ. They live in fear of the one who lives within you. This leaves the question, can the demonic do anything to Christians then? They cannot possess us. They cannot own us. What can they do? Well, Paul... Paul assumes that they do try to do things to Christians. Right? He, he speaks of, the, of our need to put on the whole armor of God. Why does he say we need to put on the whole armor of God? He says, so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Uh, later, he mentions the flaming darts of the evil one, right? Think of a flaming dart. A flaming dart is not going to kill you, but it can be painful. Uh, they're not only, but they are, they are not deadly for the believer. But we can also infer that, that demons have plans. They have schemes. They, they, they do attempt things against Christians. And so you read scripture in part so that you can know your enemy, so that you know what he can do. Um, they cannot possess us, but they can attempt to deceive us. Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy, where he says, in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of Demons. So in this situation, what's Paul envisioning? He's envisioning uh, false teachers being used by demons to peddle lies. In spite of the fact that Satan and his demons do war against us, we, we have nothing to fear, against, fear from them. We have nothing to fear from them. They cannot possess us. They cannot control us. They cannot destroy us. But Paul also says that they can put up a fight. But of course, because of this, Paul tells us to put on the armor of God. Put on the armor of God, right? His answer is God, not you, right? It's not put on the armor of of Ben. Do not put on the armor of Eric. Do not put on the armor of anybody else. Put on the armor of God. So his answer is turn your gaze upon the Lord that you can fight against all of these things that are done against you, right? Um, Demons know God. They have good theology. They, They have accurate doctrine, Um, If you sat down, they could outthink you in a fight. They could could outwit you probably because they know and they have known for centuries and millennia what God is like and who he is such that they see Jesus. And again, like I said before, they know that he's going to be gracious to these men. They have accurate doctrine, but they hate what they know. And they hate the one that they know. And, And they fear him. They don't fear you. Except that they fear your guardian and they fear your protector. They fear your God. And so the answer is not, hey, I just got to face down those demons and talk to them. Tell them who's boss. In the book of Acts, some people try to do that and they get their butts kicked. And they go running away. He he says, "Uh, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but I don't know you is is what they say to them. And so... Uh, Please don't think that you are some demon slayer who speaks words to demons and tells them what to do. God himself is the demon slayer, uh, and he is the one who protects. But the answer is for us to flee to the Lord. And the chief way that spiritual warfare takes place, if you read Ephesians chapter 6, is through the practice of prayer. It is fleeing to God in prayer. Because what is prayer? Prayer is calling upon God the warrior to come and fight for you. Prayer is calling upon God to come and to bring the sword of the spirit and to minister and to care for you and to remove his enemies. That's what happens when we engage in spiritual warfare. It's why prayer exists as a gift for the believer. And prayer should be as reflexive for us as it is for a soldier to reach for his sword. What a shame that we're not quicker to pray. What do we do instead? We talked about it last week. We, we cling to our own cleverness and our own wisdom and our own devices. And yet we have to go to God. The cross itself is an example of the sort of things that Satan may attempt. I talked already, i asked that question. What is it that Satan can do? What is it that demons can do? And the cross itself is an example of that. The sort of thing that Satan may attempt against God's people but what is the cross? The cross is is God deflecting the evil intentions of Satan for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. An aspect of the cross we might not even appreciate is that even as he was seemingly defeated by men, seemingly thrown down, he was defeating the forces of evil. He was throwing them down, even as he's dying. Um, Henry Blotcher says it like this. He says... At the cross, evil is conquered as evil. Corruption, perversion, disorder, a parasite. Evil is conquered as evil because God turns it back upon itself. He makes the supreme crime, the murder of the only righteous person, the very operative operation that abolishes sin. The maneuver is utterly unprecedented. No more complete victory could be imagined. Evil like a Judoist, takes advantage of the power of good which it perverts. The Lord, like a supreme champion, replies by using the very grip of the opponent. We have no other position than at the foot of the cross. God's answer is evil turned back upon itself, conquered by the ultimate degree of love in the fulfillment of justice. First John 2 tells us that in Christ we have overcome the evil one uses this overcome language, this victory language, to describe our position with regard to Satan and his angels. John says, you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. When you are in Christ, John says, you've overcome. John says, you need not fear. I mean, we're fearful people. Maybe we think we're afraid of. Of, of demons, but you know, demons have succeeded whether you're thinking about them or not. If you live in fear, don't we need to be reminded of these truths? Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that in his death, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He uses this triumph language. Um, We see in Jesus's ministry that he lives such that he's constantly defeating Satan's forces as he moves through the world. He is terrorizing them. He is dominating them. They are always afraid of him. And he is never afraid because he's the victorious one, because he's the sovereign one. You know, what's really amazing is, is that Jesus invites us to join him. Right. He says, he says, I'm not afraid. I go through this world and I am not afraid. Afraid. And so he says, abide in me. right? Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He gives you the invitation. He says, he says abide in me. I will protect you. Abide in me. You have nothing to fear. Abide in me. I'll be your life. I'll be your victor. Abide with me. How can we do that? How can we... How can we live in his protection? How can we we live safe from the harm of the evil one? We can put on the whole armor of God by placing our faith in him. By living in his protection. But But that begins by giving up on yourself and putting your hope in him. It means confessing your sin. It means confessing your need. It means no longer trying to live by your own strength. There's something amazing about being able to look at Jesus and when the fears come your way, being able to say from the bottom of your heart, I'm with him. And, And you know that you will always be safe. And that's what Jesus holds out today. He says, Abide in me and all fear is gone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. You know that we are weak, frail, and even fearful people. We tend to run from trouble even when there is nothing to fear. Would you teach our hearts that we have nothing to fear in the spiritual realm? Keep us in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because we trust in you. For you are a victorious God victorious over sin, victorious over evil. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.